Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Scott, you're a nerd. Oh, I, I, you're not going to insult me. I felt like I've got to insult myself. Uh, you're wearing a hat. Toque. Well, go shit in your toque then. <laughs> Let's get to it. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. As our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes... Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians who are interested in the dark side of Canada and Canadian history. Put on your toque, not the one that Scott has on his head. Has poop in it. Grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Welcome to episode 19 of Dark Poutine. Uh, yeah, so this is going to be take two because we tried to go yesterday and my voice was shredded again because of this stupid post-nasal drip and horrible cough that I have. Mike's got Ebola. Apparently. Yeah, you, you got Ebola. Uh, I don't think those are symptoms of Ebola, but... I've read a book on it. How long ago did you read that book? Semantics, Mike. No, no. A year ago, 25 years ago, what's the diff? Okay. Anyway, uh, in episode... Ebola. Ebola. In episode 18, we covered the early life and crimes of Alan Legere, including his first murder, that of Chatham's shopkeeper, John Glendening. Legere had been sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 18 years in 1987. He started appealing his sentence right away. This guy couldn't take responsibility for himself ever, mm-hmm. uh, claiming it was the other men who'd committed the murder of Glendening and attempted murder and sexual assault of Glendening's wife, Mary. He'd been there, but was innocent of the crimes as he was merely a bystander. He said he only went inside to tell the others to hurry up. Oh, well, that changes everything. Yeah, he's just you're trying to be efficient and hurry <laughs> things along. Efficiency is important. You have been a supervisor at a call center. Oh, oh, I have. Good decade, if it's taught me anything. Yeah. Numbers. Numbers. It's all about the numbers. 
In the meantime, <laughs> Legere began to plot his escape. Sitting in jail wasn't his thing, I guess. Yeah. Legere thought the system was crooked, and he was being conspired against. Forget the fact that he'd murdered an elderly man, then raped and beaten his wife almost to death. Nope, those are inconsequential. Well, reality and Alan Legere are not good friends. No, clearly. Legere drove pins into his ears, trying to cause an infection. It reminds me of that. Who was that guy who would, uh, in like the 40s who would stick needles in his rectum? Albert Fish. Yeah. Oh. Uh, anyway, so it worked. Legere got an ear infection, and so he had to be taken from the Atlantic Institution, uh, uh, the Corrections Canada Maximum Security Prison in Renew. New Brunswick to a specialist office in Moncton. So it was about like an hour and a half away. Okay. Uh, he didn't try to escape on his first or second visits in October and November of 1988. It was too friggin' cold out. Classic Canada. Classic Canada. I've seen it snow on Halloween. Really? Yep. Yeah, not here in BC, but. No, uh, no. Back in Nova Scotia, it was a bit of a drag when that <laughs> happened. Uh, he did his homework when he was out in the doctor's office casing the joint and he got the lay of the land and this would be the perfect place to escape from. Hmm. Now, how is he going to go about that? Get a plan. Well, first he let his beard and his hair grow long and shaggy. Easy to shave off, right? Correct. If they're looking for a hairy, a hairy beardy guy, yep. you just shave yep. that off. Legere was seen as easygoing with the staff inside, all part of the plan. While everybody else was busy being an asshole, he played Sweetie Pie to fly under the radar. Yeah, all part of that uh, uh, um, manipulation sure. that uh, killers are known for. Yeah, in his mind, uh, the guards were suckers, and he played them like a fiddle. Uh, no one saw Alan Legere as an escape risk, so he was pretty successful. Hmm. Um, on May 3rd, 1989, that was the day when all that would change. Legere had another specialist appointment in Moncton. Hmm. That morning at around 7.40, prison guards Bob Hazlitt and Robert Winters came to get Legere ready for his doctor's visit. Legere was busy in the bathroom and would buzz his call button when he was ready. Hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm busy doing my thing. Bathroom, we go to bathroom. Yep. Uh, after he was done, uh, the guards collected him and they began walking away. And Legere said... He needed to return to his cell for a crossword puzzle book and a change out of his slippers into his shoes. Innocent enough. Sure. What was he doing there, though, you know? Getting crossword puzzle and slippers. There clearly. you go. Excellent. So they let him return on his own, and he was back in a couple of minutes. They did the requisite strip search, even doing a visual inspection of Legere's rectum, but not using the handheld metal detector that was nearby. Hmm. Okay. Well, if they had, they would have found the collapsed TV antenna that he shoved up his butt only minutes earlier. Oh, okay, yeah. So I don't know if he was trying to get, like, uh, the hockey game or something. <laughs> better reception, clearly. It was, yeah, a, it was yeah, about reception. If you've got an antenna up your ass, I'm sure that... Uh, you, clearly it's about, re yeah. Reception. So it's about reception. I don't know how well received that's going to be, but... <laughs> Anywho. Um... The second oversight came when they went through his belongings that he was bringing along with him on his little jaunt to the doctor's <laughs> office. So he had a ballpoint pen for his crosswords mm -hmm. and two old port cigars. However, anybody who knew Legere knew he didn't smoke, hmm. but the guards didn't know him that well. He'd hidden another piece of metal in one of the cigars to help him with his escape plan. Hmm. Uh-oh. 
After searching Legere and turning up nothing, the guards locked him into leg irons and handcuffs and chained it all together by a, one of those body belts. Okay. So, you know, the, yep. the ones that keep everybody together. Yep. He looked like Harry Houdini before a trick. Yeah, he did have some tricks up his sleeve. Well, um, not his sleeve, but you know what? He had something. Yeah. Uh, Bob Hazlitt and Robert Winters, Alan Legier, all piled into the prison van for the 90-minute drive. A third corrections officer, Doug Sweezy. Sweezy. I don't know why I like this name when I wrote it. Immediately I thought, that's a dope name. Yeah. yeah. What's your name? Man, my name's Doug Sweezy. Yeah. It's like... Anything. Oh, imagine Scott Sweezy. The double S's. Scott Sweezy. Well, you could just take the S off and make me Mike Wheezy because I'm asthmatic. <laughs> oh. Yeah, bum bum. Groan. So anyway, uh, Bob Sweezy was at the wheel of the van. On arrival at the hospital, Legere and Winters and Haslick got out of the van, and Sweezy stayed in the van to keep it running and warm or whatever. To keep it Sweezy. Keep it Sweezy. Keeping it Sweezy. Um, no one would notice until later that one of Legere's cigars lay on the floor of the van, broken open. Oh. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Legere immediately complained upon entering the building that he needed to go to the bathroom. Didn't he just go? Yeah. I guess, you know, the reception wasn't what he needed to be, <laughs> needed it to be and he had to adjust things. Uh, so, um, Winters took Legere to a staff washroom and uh, Hazlitt went off to do some paperwork. And with no stalls, um, it was just one of those one-holer washrooms with just a single door that opens on into the hallway. Oh, yeah, okay. So Legere just went in by himself because the guard's like, well, there's no windows in here, so he's not going to yep. escape by yep. the window. Yeah. So, of course, you're just going to let the guy go in there and do his business. Uh, so Legere went in by himself. A minute later, the door opened a crack, and uh, Legere asked Winters if he could grab him some toilet paper. Another fair request. Yep. You know, like, so here's the reception right over here. So, uh, Winters walks over to the reception, and as soon as he did, the door of the washroom opened, and out came Legere without chains, leg irons, or body belt. Wow. Yeah, right? And he just split. Uh, he sprinted out of the building <laughs> and uh, warning Winters not to follow him. Later, his leg irons and monocles and body belt were found in the bathroom sink. He really had done a Houdini. Yeah, no kidding. Yep. Wow. Uh, Sweezy, still in the van, saw Legere run out the door, and so he gave chase. He almost had Legere at one point uh, when the criminal turned and took a swipe at Sweezy with a metal object. He thought it was a knife, but it would later prove to be the TV antenna. <laughs> The smelly TV antenna. Oh, I, yeah, I would have treated it like a knife. Yeah, yeah, that's a knife. <laughs> yeah, that's clearly like a piece of corn on there. Some brain was waving at me. Some brown stick. So I just it ran off. I, I stepped yeah. back. Fair enough. You never know what you're going to catch. Right this way, sir. So Legere sprinted for the hospital parking lot where there were cars waiting to leave. Uh, uh, you know the the arm that you know you got to pay and. Oh, yes, yeah, yes. So they're waiting parkade, to pay. Uh, yeah, exactly, or... that kind of thing. And uh, the next car waiting for them to pay uh, was driven by a woman named Peggy Olive. And uh, Legere opened her driver's side door, got into the car, and shoved her roughly over, taking the wheel himself. 
He warned her to be cool and told her he'd drop her off later. And he also told her he had nothing to lose, so don't mess around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jeez, a fear. That would have been terrifying. Right? Legere dropped Olive off a few blocks away, and she ran to call police as he sped off in her car. And her car was found later. No Legere. Oh, well. So he got away. Wow. The authorities were mortified. A convicted murderer was roaming free. Cops combed Moncton all day and saw neither hide nor hair of Alan Legere. Hmm. They thought they had him at one point the next day. Dogs picked up a scent, and they chased who they thought was him through the woods, but again, he eluded capture. Hmm. Legere was in the wind. News outlooks all over Atlanta, Canada began squawking about Alan Legere and his escape uh, because his murder, the first murder, made big big news because, you know, Miramichi is a nice little place and murders don't happen there. Well, even if it had made the news, you've got a convicted murderer on the loose. That unto itself will exactly. create some uh, panic. Yeah. So on May 7th, four days after Legere's escape, just across the causeway in Nova Scotia at the Truro Raceway, a man was badly beaten and tied up by someone matching Legere's description. His car was stolen, as was his wallet, and the man's empty wallet was later found, and his (laughs) stolen car was also found. Where? Near the Miramichi River. Oh. Oh. No wonder Hmm. who took his car. Back to New Brunswick. Bruce Banner. Okay. Don't make him mad, I guess. No. On May 10th, someone was seen peeping into a window of a home in Chatham. The owner of the house noticed wiry black hair. She knew it was Legere. Oh. Uh, later, some jewelry was found missing. So Chatham's not a big place, So, no. and he had a name in Chatham, and everybody knew who this guy was. So uh-huh. he, he, they kept seeing him everywhere. Uh, yeah. But uh, every time they would call the cops... He would vanish. On May 16th, a man matching Legere's description was seen in a field uh, in the same town in Chatham, but disappeared before the landowner could investigate. There were two more sightings in Chatham before the end of May. On May 28th, Alan Legere would kill again. Annie Flam was a kind 75-year-old corner store owner, and she lived there with her sister-in-law, Nina. What's like, he's like, is it in a, well, maybe we'll find out, but Let's, I'm curious about like, it's uh, two store owners he's gone after. Right. If you ever needed something, you went to Annie's. Her hmm. store had been there for 50 years. Oh, wow. Um, so her sister-in-law, Nina, she went, went to bed around 1030 that night and Annie was up watching TV. Mm-hmm. At around 1115, a man wearing blue jeans and white running shoes was seen in the alleyway near Annie's. No one thought any more of it till later on, obviously. Harry Preston of Newcastle drove by Annie's at 3.50 a.m. He saw smoke. He pulled over and got out of his car and ran up and began pounding on the door because Annie's was on fire. So he was trying to rouse the flams, who he presumed to be sleeping. You know, people sometimes will sleep through a fire if the alarm doesn't wake them up. Yep. Um... So, uh, a cop car with two police officers just happened to be passing at that time and called the fire department. One of the cops went around the back door, went through the storefront to uh, find Nina, partially clothed and nearly unconscious. She told police she'd been raped. A man in a mask, calling himself Gerald, had startled Nina out of a dead sleep. 
He wanted $3,000 and claimed he wouldn't hurt her if he got what he wanted. He lied, though. He ended up beating Nana and asking about a safe that didn't exist. When she couldn't tell him what he wanted to know, Legere raped Nina. When she wasn't compliant dur during the rape, he mercilessly beat the 62-year-old woman. <sighs> Legere had set at least five fires around the Flam's house to cover things up, one of which was on the mattress where Nina was laying before she was able to make it to her feet and struggle to the foot of the stairs where she was later found. So she was pretty badly burned as well. Oh, no. Where was Annie? Oh, I don't have uh, a lot of optimism. No. Annie Flam's body was found in the smoldering rubble of her home and business. She'd been beaten to death. Her jaw was badly broken. Oh. Ironically, on May 29th, the day that Annie Flam had died, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that Alan Legere had until October 1st to have his appeal heard on the murder of John Glendinning. Okay. So... Yeah, odd time. Hey, butthole, if you would have stayed in jail, you probably would have gotten an appeal. And mm. whether he got out or not is another thing. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the cops played voices, uh, tapes of voices to Nina Flam, uh, and one of which was uh, Alan Legere. But she couldn't identify any of them as the person who uh, had attacked her. And some, some cops and some people thought, for sure, this is Legere, but yeah. oddly, some doubted, even though uh, the crime practically mirrored the Glendening murder. Exactly. Like you, you mentioned yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, stick to your MO, I guess. Yeah. It's like, I think... Well, I think perhaps it's about, you know, the, there's going to be, if you live on the property, there's most likely going to be money there. Mm-hmm. You're, you're going to keep a lot of the cash and transactions from the day on site, I would imagine. So he, that's probably his MO. Yeah. There, there's going to be cash. Yeah, I'm drinking chamomile tea and honey. Did you call me honey? No. Oh, my. Cutie patootie. Anyway, throughout the summer and early fall, the sightings continued. But by the time the cops showed up, Legere or whoever it was had vanished. He entered a home at one point with a shotgun and knocked out a couple who lived there to rummage mm. around the house on his own. In another incident, a man was shot in the back with a shotgun by Jeez. a stranger matching Legere's description, demanding money. The man survived, but barely. Holy cow, it's not often you survive a shotgun blast. Yeah, well, he could have been using birdshot. Is that? Yeah, birdshot is tiny. Like, it's, they're tiny little pellets. But if you're close enough, that's going, like, isn't that still going to rip sure. a person apart? But who knows, like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know any of the real particulars there. I want details, Mike. You, I, I want photographs. You know that thing I told you to do in your hat? Yeah. Yeah. Do it now. Do it now, Scott. No. Invest. Oh, God. The stench. Investigators also started to consider this newfangled investigative technique known as DNA fingerprinting. They'd read a lot about it. There'd been cases in the UK and uh, in the US, but uh, there had never been any successful uh, prosecutions in Canada by oh, wow. way of uh, DNA. Mm -hmm. They had, people had gotten off. Uh, they had been exonerated with DNA evidence, but nobody had ever been convicted at oh, that interesting. point. Yeah. So in October, Legere was still on the run. The Supreme Court tossed out his appeal on October 12th. Because if you're not there to show up to do it. When you're supposed to be in prison. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, part of the deal was he had to turn himself in to get his appeal as well, but it was a little late. For yeah, and it like that. yeah, yeah. Uh, the next day, October thirteenth, nineteen eighty nine, Legere would kill again. Wow. Sisters Donna and Linda Daphne were Legere's next victims. Linda Daphne was arriving home around ten fifteen from a coffee date with a friend at a local Tim Hortons. Ligier, who was already outside the darkened home, saw her coming and pounced, smashing her in the face with his fist. Ligier beat Linda horribly in her gravel driveway, ripping her earrings out and breaking her upper and lower jaw, leaving blood everywhere. Oh, my God. Linda lay knocked out on the gravel. Donna heard the commotion outside and ran to the window, just as Ligier smashed through the back door. Donna put up a mighty struggle, but she was overwhelmed by the attacker, who beat her so badly he broke bones and ruptured a blood vessel in her brain. Oh, my God. Yeah, just a horrific person. Like, like part of his M.O. is violence. And with his <clears throat> bare hands. Because it's not like he's coming and, like, freeze, get inside. I'm going to, like, his, his step one is brutalize. Brutalize. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Legier dragged Donna upstairs to her bed where he threw her on the bed slashed a hole in her throat and began torturing her with his knife, slashing and gouging at her. Legere brutally raped Donna, leaving his semen on her body. Donna vomited, as she was unconscious, and aspirated the fluid, choking to death on her own stomach contents. God. Legere left Donna and gathered up Linda, who was still in the driveway, laying outside unconscious, uh, and he brought her upstairs to Linda's bedroom, where he dumped her on the floor, now naked, as he'd undressed her as he went. Oh. He ransacked the house, looking for things he could use. Rolls of quarters were one thing he found. Uh, he even felt safe enough to turn lights on in the house as he roamed about. Uh, a, a local teenager saw the lights on around 3.15, but, you know, she thought, that's kind of weird, but just walked on, because you're yeah. not going to assume anything. Yeah, and when you see lights on in a house late at night, your original assumption isn't, oh, oh, something's going on. Yeah, or maybe somebody's up and they're not feeling well, or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah, something's up, but nothing that you'd have to worry about. So, again, Legere raped the unconscious Linda, leaving more semen behind, as well as a brutal bite mark on one of her breasts. So he was another one of those guys. Yeah. Just saddest. Yeah, like, exactly. Completely sadistic. Uh, Legere set fire to some clothes in Donna's closet. As he was leaving, he tucked Donna's dead body into her bed, uh, perhaps to cover his crime, make it look like she died sleeping. There's still, like, gashes in her neck. Right. So, I mean, like, that's a blanket's but, not... But if it's if the house burns down completely... Maybe but, all that evidence is covered up. But they don't typically. But I don't know okay. that. Do you, does Legere know that? He doesn't seem like the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> no, clearly. Um, yeah. So uh, someone noticed a dis disheveled-looking man between 510 and 545 near the intersection by the Daphne home, jumping up and down, trying to keep warm. And he was looking at something, but this person just drove by. Uh, I guess the house wasn't burning down to the quality that he would like, so Legere went back inside. Oh. Although Donna was dead, Linda was still alive. He set another fire, and this one caught quickly, and the house began to really burn. Legere left as the blaze began to engulf the home, and Linda died of smoke inhalation. 
the Dofty sisters' half-naked bodies were recovered by firemen and taken to the morgue where evidence could be gathered from their corpses. This was clearly foul play and not an accidental fire. Mm -hmm. The funeral director had known the sisters for years but could not tell them apart because they were so badly beaten. At 9.30 a.m., uh, the funeral director identified them by their size. Donna Daphne was heavier, and Linda, who was younger, uh, wasn't as heavy. Were they older ladies as well? In their 50s, I believe. Okay. okay. Yep. Uh, October 18th, 1989, Crime Stoppers offered a $10,000 reward for Ligier's capture. RCMP told the press that, yes, Ligier was a suspect, but there were others. I don't know who those would have been. Even though the cops wanted to keep the events out of the media, it was impossible to contain, obviously, because now three other people have have died, mm-hmm. and another one is, is very badly beaten up yes. and burnt. Yes. So people were terrified. The story went national, and residents of Atlantic Canada, who'd never locked the doors before, began double-locking them, and uh, people even... Uh, began keeping weapons nearby in their bedrooms and those kind of things in case the monster came calling. Police warned the public about taking the law into their own hands, but police, you know, nobody's, nobody's going to listen to those guys. <laughs> if somebody walks into your house and it, and it looks like Alan Legier, they're probably going to get popped in oh, the head. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Halloween, Halloween was cancelled that year. Also uh, Halloween. Halloween. Oh, no. no, it's not. It was Halloween. Oh, was it? Okay. Good. Yes. Good. It was canceled that year in some towns because people were too afraid to let their kids outside for fear that Legere was about. Yeah, I, I could understand that fear. Yep. I remember that. I remember that actually very well. Oh, do well. you? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, well, I lived in Atlantic Canada at the time. I was uh, 20. Yeah. Yeah. 89, yeah. Yep. Uh into November, more sightings, more break-ins and thefts in the Chatham area. Legere was still eluding police. Like, uh, it's crazy that he's still staying local. Right? Like, you would think, like, okay, I should probably... Where was he hiding in, like, maybe a cottage nearby? Because there's lots of summer places and things yeah. like that. He could have just holed up somewhere very but, easily. But again, still, like, you're, you're going to think, like, they, people recognize me around here. I'm, you know, it's best to go to somewhere else. But... But some people think that, He's, and Alan Gere sort of has alluded to it over the years, he wanted the people of Chatham to be terrified. Yeah, okay. Yeah, part of his... Uh, uh, he got off of it. Yeah. Like, these people yep. had screwed him over, so he's yep. going to do the same to them. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. Yeah. On November 16th, uh, 1989, the RCMP announced that they would be holding a news conference the next day. Uh, People were reporting that uh, DNA evidence was conclusively connecting the crimes involving Flam and the Mm, Daphne sisters. And um, from DNA that they had gathered prior from said individual, Mm -hmm. connected him to the crime as well. But that was only speculation at that point. Uh, Many thought the cops were finally going to name Legier the main suspect in the three slayings, making him technically a serial killer. Yep. Yeah. There would be one more murder. (sighs) Yeah. Father James Smith grew up locally and came home to Chatham as a priest in the 60s. He was kind and well-respected in the community, always there for his parishioners, lending a hand to those less fortunate. So what a priest should be. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They aren't all awful people. No, absolutely not. 
Yeah. So uh, Father Smith in his rectory heard a racket outside and it sounded like something hit the side of the house. So he went outside to investigate, finding a ladder against the wall of the garage connected to the rectory. Mm. So what the heck? Mm -hmm. He didn't see anyone around, but heard a noise near the patio and went to look uh, into it. And the back door had been ripped open and uh, kicked in. So he went inside, obviously. Uh, As soon as as he got inside, Legere rushed at Father Smith, demanding money from his safe again. How did he know that Father Smith had a safe? He must have, like, been casing these places. Well, but, I mean, remember the last one, that um, store, he yelled for it, there was no safe there. So that might just be he assumes there's a safe everywhere. Sure, like the church collection, there's got to be a safe nearby. Exactly. Um, Father Smith said that there was no money, and Legere pulled a knife, slashing at the priest. Wow. Father Smith's hands were cut as he defended himself from Legere's swiping blade. Legere punched and kicked Father Smith, trying to tying him to a chair and torturing him, slashing the old man's face to ribbons with oh, his knife. God. Yeah, see, like it's just—it's clearly like violence was his. his it, yeah, it, it's a—it's a key part of why he's doing all this. Yep. Uh, Jesus, what a sick son of a bitch. Yep. After dragging Father Smith into his study and beating him further, Legere strangled the priest, leaving him to choke in his own vomit, just like Donna Daphne. As the priest lay gurgling, Legere jumped up and down on the man's chest over and over, crushing his ribcage. So Legere is like he's a six feet foot tall, 200 pound man jumping up and down. On Holy his shit. Yep. Uh, Legere went to work on the safe, so there was an oh. actual safe. Uh, trying and ultimately failing at opening it. As he'd murdered the priest in broad daylight, he had to wait until dark to make his escape. So what did he do? He ate, and he washed his boots, put plastic bread bags on his feet to keep them dry, changed his clothes, putting the bloody clothes in another bag. He left a bloody footprint on a magazine. He even answered the phone at one point saying, Wrong number. Wow. Yep. At 6 p.m., Uh, Police gave their press conference. Yes, Legere was the man they were looking for. Little did they know he'd killed again. Hmm. So here they are giving this press conference, and a priest, uh, Father Smith, has just been murdered. Yeah, brutalized and left. Yep. Uh, Later that evening, around 6.45, Legere hotwired the priest's car, a 1984 Oldsmobile Delta 88, and headed for the train station. He was off to Montreal. At 7.10, people were waiting for the priest to start his evening mass at the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary Church. One of the churchgoers went to check on the priest in the rectory and found a bloody and horrific scene and Father Smith dead. Mm At 7.45, a Via Rail agent sold a ticket for a train to Montreal on the 8.28 p.m. train. He remembered because the man stood to one side while buying the ticket, and he didn't look the ticket agent in the face once. Hmm. Gee, nothing suspicious about that. No, not at all. On November 17, 1989, at 2.25 a.m. in Rivière-de-Loup, Quebec, plainclothes officers boarded the train looking for a man with dark hair maybe a beard or a mustache. At 4.45 a.m., 
about 18 officers checked the darkened train looking for someone with tattoos of an eagle head and a star on his right forearm and an eagle on his right bicep. So they checked through this nine-car train, so mm -hmm. there's lots of people on it. And there it is, passenger number 30, generally matched, but wasn't near 200 pounds of the description. He'd lost weight. Mm -hmm. He said his name was Fernand Savoy of Botouche. He was asked to roll up his right sleeve. There was no tattoo. The train was allowed to leave. The description given to police had an error. The tattoo was oh. on his left forearm. Oh, no, no. Fernand Savoy was Alan Legier, and he'd just gotten away again. My God. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Uh, like, no no cell phone where you can look and say, oh, no. Wait, that's him. Yeah. Um, the, the train crew found a pair of work boots in a winter parka hidden behind the plywood that morning. The coat smelled of wood smoke, and there was a rusted nail protruding from the heel of the boot. The boot would later match the bloody footprint found on the magazine in the rectory mm. where Father Smith was murdered. Later that morning, Alan Legier, calling himself Ferdinand Savoy, checked into the Queen Elizabeth Hotel near the Montreal train station, paying $130 a night. Mm, nice hotel. Yeah. And plus, he must have gotten some money from those quarters. That, <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. Legier brazenly went to an eye doctor to get a new pair of eyeglasses as he'd lost his in New Brunswick and sold stolen jewelry to a pawn shop. Mm, okay. Well. The price on Legier's head from Crime Stoppers now went to $50,000. Things were getting hot in Montreal. Legier was on the move again. He headed back to New Brunswick. He knew the lay of the land there better, and he had been successful hiding out there so far, and plus... I guess he was so pissed off at his people in Montreal or in uh, New Brunswick, he had to go back. Yeah. yeah. Just couldn't stay away. No. Uh, Legier arrived in St. John. Um, he spent November 23rd, 1989, drinking in a bar called Piper's Pub. And there he wrote a 20-page letter that was essentially his life story as he saw it. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be <clears throat> weighted heavily in his favor. Of course it of is. Of course. He had a plastic bag with him. The bartender asked him what was in it, and he told her it was a gun. Okay. The bartender laughed it off, but it was true. There was a sawed-off three hundred eight rifle in there. Okay. When Legere left the pub, the letter was still on the table. In the letter, Legere explained how nothing was his fault. Of course, poor guy. He'd escaped because he was an innocent man. You know? Of course. Yeah. The other two he'd been with at Glendenning's were the murderers. He was 100% a bystander. He was angry at police. They'd paid people to lie about him. They'd done nothing about his son being molested in 1973. He'd quoted sections of the criminal code, Canadian criminal code, that had been applied to him improperly, quote. He ranted about CBC and Premier Frank McKenna calling the government mafia or worse. Legere hailed a taxi and said he wanted to travel the 152 kilometers to Moncton. Wow. When the cab driver called his dispatcher, he was told the fare would be $100. And when he turned back to the man uh, in his cab, he was holding a sawed-off three hundred eight rifle and oh. said, Tell them you have the fare. I'm the one they're looking for. I'm Alan Legier. 
Wow. Can you imagine you're that cab driver? No. <laughs> just like, no. oh, no. It pants full of poop instantly. Especially knowing what he's been guilty of doing. Like, right. you're, you're going to be thinking, it's like, I'm not going to make out of this. Drive. Yeah. yeah. You're, a, you're not getting out of it. But B. <laughs> where I'm, would you like to go? Where, where are you going? Um, Legere forced the cabbie to drive faster than he was comfortable in the ice and snow. And just outside of Moncton, the cab spun out. Ligier grabbed the wheel, and the cab came to rest in a snowbank. Ligier and his weapon flagged down a passing car. The driver of the vehicle was Constable oh, Michelle Mercer, yes. an off-duty RCMP officer. Well, yes or no. Uh, Ligier forced the cabbie into the car and told Mercer to drive, not knowing who she was. Constable Mer Mercer finally owned up to being an off-duty RCMP officer, and Legere showed her the gun and revealed his own identity. Oh, no. Yeah. Not wanting to die, Constable Mercer played along and said that Alan Legere should hijack a plane. She was even willing to give him her credit card. I guess trying to keep him from murdering herself. Yeah, absolutely. Get him into a scenario that is more yeah. likely to be caught. Yeah. Uh, but Legere was adamant about going to Moncton. The car was running low on fuel, and he agreed that they should pull over and refuel. So Constable Mercer pulled into an Irving gas station near Sussex, New Brunswick. Legere got out, taking money and Mercer's keys to pump the gas. So she has no keys. She's not getting away. Yep. When Legere stepped inside to pay for the gas, Constable Mercer dug her spare keys out and showed them to the cabbie, and they both agreed this might be their only chance. So they sped off. Good. Leaving Legere behind. Oh, boy, I, I'm picturing uh, both uh, the escapees and Legere. Like, so on one side, you've got like, oh, my God, we're, we're escaping. We're free. There's joy. On the other side, you've got, fuck. <laughs> Can you imagine how angry he was? Oh, it would have been, oh, so yeah. great. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have wanted to have been the gas station attendant at that point. Oh, this is true. Yeah. So cop cars uh, obviously surrounded the gas station because Constable Mercer and the cabbie went to the nearest RCMP station, but Legere was gone. Yeah, I would imagine. Again, cops set up roadblocks, but Legere had just disappeared. He commandeered a moving truck at a gas station, uh, threatening the driver and again showing off his gun and telling him who he was. He forced the driver to turn toward Moncton. So the driver was originally going from Halifax to Montreal. Uh, nothing with, with can somebody's, you know, whole house. And nothing conspicuous or ostentatious about a moving van. No, like that's not going to be no, like easy a to day spot. in Ross, like eighteen wheeler truck. Oh my god! Yeah, well, exactly. It wasn't a van. It was like an actual. What is what I'm saying? Like yeah. it's it's not like you're not hiding in that. No. Oh, they'll never see us. Yeah. It's exactly. not like it's like a black '89 Honda Civic or something. Yeah. So after ditching the trailer by the side of the road, uh, they turned down a small road toward the Miramichi River that trucks normally don't travel on. So here's this big truck trundling Jeez. down like this little laneway. Jeez. And so they were spotted and RCMP were called about the suspicious vehicle. Uh, the RCMP came up on the truck and tried to pull it over and Legere told the trucker to keep driving. They drove for 30 minutes. RCMP towed close behind. <laughs> The trucker just told Legere he couldn't go any further, and Legere allowed him to pull over to the side of the road. The trucker jumped out of the truck, yelling, It's him, it's him. He shouted, He has a gun. 
the RCMP guns drawn, one of them had an M16, oh, well. uh, approached the truck shouting, I want to see your hands. Ligier's hands went up and the gun was thrown out the window. I'm all right. I'm okay. You've got me. Yeah, because they cared that you were all right. With that, Alan Legere's seven-month reign of terror was over. Legere climbed out of the truck, and the monster of the Miramichi was taken into custody for what we hope is the last time. I would have thought, uh, honestly, that he would have gone out uh, uh, shooting like death by cop because uh, he clearly does not want to be imprisoned. He thinks everybody's out to get him. Not that he's anything bad. So a lot he's, of the times... That, here's you know, the thing. I think he's such a narcissist. He believes he will get off. Uh, wow. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. You know, like yeah. the universe will conspire in his favor. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah I'm just going to get away scot-free. Yeah. Because... Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yep. And trust me, Scots aren't free. No. On August 14th, 1990... After a day-long trial for escaping custody and kidnapping of Peggy Olive, the lady in the hospital parking lot, yep. the jury found Legere guilty after only six hours of deliberation. He was sentenced to nine years to be served concurrently with the Glen his Glendening life sentence. So I guess they charged him with that first to get him back in jail for sure. Yes. Because if he did eventually get off with the Glendening stuff, yeah, he would just vanish again. Uh, that's true. Yep. Yep. Uh... On November 20th, 1990, Legere was charged with four counts of first-degree murder against Annie Flam, Linda and Donnie Do Donna Daphne, and the priest, Father Smith. Legere pleaded not guilty, of mm. course. Legere argued that the Crown had a year to learn about DNA, and Weldon Frelot, who was his lawyer, didn't have any information. How could you expect him to defend me? So he's already setting up his appeal. Yep. You know? Yep. Wow. This guy is so transparently a scumbag. Yep. The judge decided the trial would proceed, and a trial date was set for February of 1991. But after all the legal wrangling and a six-week voir dire, which is a preliminary hearing, the actual trial wasn't set to begin until August 26, 1991. In Canada, the wheels of justice turned slowly. Yeah. Yeah. They do. Near the beginning of the trial, uh, Legere was screaming that he would be unable to get a fair trial because one of the jurors had even admitted to reading a book that had been printed about uh, Legere. Okay, well then they just removed the juror, don't they? Well, apparently they didn't. <laughs> but anyway. Oh, okay. On September 5th, 1991, uh, 63-year-old Nina Flam faced her attacker once more. She told the court clearly and concisely how she'd been beaten, raped, and set on fire by a masked man in her home. Weldon Furlot, Alan Legere's defense counsel, cross-examined Nina Flam after a short break in proceedings. It did not go well. Furlot badgered Nina about the color of Alan Legere's pubic hair. Oh. He, she said it was light, and Legere has dark hair, so he was arguing it was dark, and they were even saying, let's have him pull his pants down here in court and... Show everybody mm. the color of his pubic hair. Mm. So clearly the press had a field day with that juicy tidbit. Of course. The real star witness, though, was DNA fingerprinting. As I mentioned before, no one in Canada had been, ever been convicted of DNA evidence at that point, only acquitted. The prosecution did their best to prove that the semen, hair, and blood left at the crime scenes belonged to Legere and Legere alone. 
having expert after expert testify, all while Legier was squirming, cursing, and taunting the prosecution from the prisoner's box. This trial would set the precedent for all those DNA cases yet to be tried using DNA evidence in Canada. Hmm. Even though uh, Legere's attorney tried to poke holes in the prosecution's case, in the end, the jury would convict Alan Legere on all four counts of first-degree murder. Hmm. Hooray. Good. Yeah, exactly. In respect to your convictions, the judge said, on each, I sentence you to life imprisonment without the eligibility of parole for 25 years. Sheriffs, please remove Mr. Legere from the court. And Legere said... The trial's not done yet, Your Honor. We'll have round number two. Dick. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just so easy to hate. Legere was moved uh, from the prison in Renew, New Brunswick, to a maximum security prison in Quebec. And just last year, Alan Legere made the news again when the public feared he would escape when he was being moved from Quebec to another maximum security prison in Alberta. Hmm. He didn't escape. Although he continues to appeal and be a general nuisance, authorities say Legere is safely locked away and will never escape again. I wonder if he realizes that. Oh, hell no. No. Yeah. No. He's the kind of guy, like, I would like to see, uh, like, the Mindhunter dudes have a conversation with. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, I'd love to see an interview about him. I don't know if he would ever be honest or talk though. Well, they, John Douglas was quite successful at getting uh, some people to speak who, who talk about their crimes who uh, it was believed never would. So, you know. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Uh, they, they are skilled at what they do. But that was part of the uh, challenge of that job was that you have to pretend to be of a similar mindset of the person you're talking to in order to get them to open up and man the toll that takes on you after year after year. Yeah, for sure. I'm looking forward to meeting some profilers when I go to CrimeCon. Yeah, that's something I'd always love to have done. Yeah. So uh, thank you to Vanessa S., who pledged uh, for us on Patreon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Vanessa. Adam upped his, doubled his pledge, who uh, one of our very active members of the Yumber Yard and... Uh, uh, one of my favorite Aussies at this point. He's awesome. Yeah, he's totally yeah, he's awesome. He's a great guy. Apparently, he's coming to uh, Canada and the U.S. in October. So damn Skippy, we're gonna get some poutine. We are so gonna shove poutine in his ears. Um, he looks bigger than us, though. So. Yeah, like I don't know if that's the best introduction. It may be. No, I don't think it is. Anyway, we'll be okay, I'm pretty sure. Well, now I'm concerned. Up until that moment, I hadn't been. So thank you so, so much for our new Patreon supporters. We really appreciate uh, every penny. And uh, I'm just amazed that anybody's giving us anything at all. I know I say that every week, but uh, I guess we're doing an okay job. Yeah, that's it's crazy to, to have that sink in, because it, it doesn't really. No. And I have one correction we have to make so oh is this is this about uh tanya no no it's not about that's not for uh it's not tanya it's tonya tanya no scott oh. how do you say it tonya tunya like petunia yeah 
Well, that petunias are nice. That's what I'm saying. But it's Tonya. Tonya. Yes. Okay, I got we Tonya. Are, we are sorry. You corrected us. You can call me Scoot. Scoot. And and I'm Matt, apparently. Scoot and Matt. Scoot. <laughs> Scott <laughs> is Scooters, just so you know. Yeah, it's kind of, people call me that. Um, thank you also to uh, Kyla from Toronto, the Prime Minister of Dark Poutine, for the epic oh, video. Oh, my God. Right? Oh. So she made a video, <laughs> and if if you want to join the Yumber Yard, you need to find uh, Kyla's video there. Uh, essentially, she had some extra poutine left over. Which shouldn't happen, I'm just Which saying. Which shouldn't happen. I'm just you saying. Should, you should shove the, all of the poutine into but your face. if you do have some left over. Or if you're not a fat person like I am and you actually have self-control when it comes to eating, <laughs> um, you may have some left over. And so Kyla shows us very some interesting ways to, to deal with with your leftover poutine. Well, you know, um, I'd go as far as far as to say she's a, she's a skincare pioneer. Oh, absolutely! Like she, like absolutely. You're gonna see all the celebrities. I'm not gonna give away the video, but you're gonna see. You're, you're pretty much giving it away right now. Shut your face. We're, we're gonna. You're gonna see all the celebrities will be doing it. Yeah. And uh, like they'll be flying her out to Hollywood. Oh, for absolutely! Her tips. It's you know. It's we are honored just to just to have such a, a mind a, amongst I, us. I think she's a wizard. Yeah, that's all. Oh, some form of wizard. That explains Cause, it. Because there is wizardry afoot. That explains it. Mm -hmm. Clear as day now. Clear as day. Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> if you are in the mood to, uh, you can donate to us at patreon.com slash dark poutine. Or you can send us some donut money. Uh, via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepod. Oh my God, my voice is going. I have to have a drink of chamomile. So send us some donut money and some more money for honey and chamomile tea. Keep the voice alive. Exactly. To uh, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. And you can check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com for show notes and other stuff. You can email us with a voice message. We will play it or go to darkpoutine.com slash message and leave us a message there. We'll play it. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Or just search Dark Poutine. Tell your friends about us. And we mentioned the Umber Yard. Come there. Come sure. there. Come to the Umber Yard. Join the Umber Yard. Buy a shirt. <laughs> Buy a shirt too. Yeah. Well, there's, there's ways to do that. Uh, you can sub subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory like iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or at our host, Podbean. Lots of you have left five-star reviews and comments on iTunes, and we appreciate every one. Every little bit helps. So, we've got a promo. It's about Texas crimes, and it's called, the podcast is called All Crime, No Cattle. I love it. And so... They uh, did a little promo for us, and I was very flattered by uh, what they said about us. And it was very nice to hear them being so kind about our show. Aww. Yeah, so all crime, no cattle. You guys are friends of the show for sure. We love it. And they talk about crimes specific to Texas. 
And one that I really liked, I've listened to a bunch of their shows, and one that I really liked is their uh, show about uh, the two-parter about Charles Whitman. Mm, okay. Yeah, the the shooter from the the tower. Yeah, yeah, I've I've, I've watched a lot on on that. Yeah. Yeah, that. Uh, have you seen the cartoon documentary The Tower on Netflix? No, I don't think I've seen that one. Yeah, well, you need to watch that cartoon. Yeah, it's it's a cartoon about that day. Interesting, okay. It's pretty fascinating, yeah. really well done. And I commented to them over Twitter uh, as well, but I really like their music. It's it's definitely too... If you listen to their podcast, you'll see what I mean. It It's very... It says Texas to me. <laughs> it says Wild, Wild West. Oh. You know, I'm, I'm coming to you from Texas. Although they don't talk like this... I, this is what I think all people from Texas should talk like. Let's get the petition going. I think so. Yeah. So here is the promo for All Crime, No Cattle. Hi, True Crime fans. I'm Erin. And I'm Shay. We host All Crime, No Cattle, a conversational podcast which focuses on true crime stories from the Lone Star State. We strive to bring you a balanced and well-researched story about Texas cases big and small. We do the research so you don't have to. We also end every episode with a good news story, just to remind everyone that real life isn't quite as depressing as true crime can make it out to be. New episodes drop every Thursday, and you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All crime, no cattle, because crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. That is it for this episode of Dark Poutine. I am glad that we have Mr. Alan Legere in the books. Uh, and in prison, right where he belongs, rot in there, you rotten, uh, bad apple. He is a bad he's apple. A, oh, he's the definition of bad apple. He is definitely not a good egg. No. No. No, he would squash the egg. Yeah. So please, don't you forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.